Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And it's just on four o'clock and it's time for Tuesday Home Time with Joan Bartlett and as usual, I'll be here until six o'clock. Today, the work of human rights defenders with Peace Brigades International. I'll be speaking with Ilo from Peace Brigades International Australia. Why there is a crisis in Venezuela with Fred Fuentes, who's a journalist and author. How Gene Ethics Network came to be back three, 30 years ago and what has been happening in the past 30 years. I'll be speaking with Bob Phelps, who's the director of the Gene Ethics Network and the life and political activism of Hall Greenwood. Greenland, I apologise. Hall Greenland. On the program last week, Hall Greenland spoke about his friend and comrade, Dr Alan Roberts, who died last December, aged 91. Today we hear about Hall and his political life. Hall, you are much younger than Alan Roberts, but I would imagine your life has also been one of political activism and agitation. Was yours a political family? Well, it partly explains it. I I did come from a Labor family. I had a mother who was active in the Labor Party, in the left of the Labor Party, and also in her union, the Clark's Union, uh, and then was one of the people who kicked off the anti-war Vietnam War movement in Sydney in the 1960s. That's pretty political. Yeah, that's quite political. But like most of my generation, I was further radicalised by you know, apart a struggle against apartheid, the civil rights movement in the United States, the fight for Algerian independence, the Vietnam War, and so on. Those things drove me further to the left, I suppose. And where did you find out about all those things? I was at university, and I did fall in with, uh, you know, the most left people at Sydney University in the 1960s, and we also got the New Statesman airmail copies of the New Statesman from London at home so there were plenty of sources and via the university and via the Labour Party I met the old left revolutionaries Nick Origlass and Izzy Weiner who had a kind of anarcho-trotskyist group in Sydney and I fell, fell in with them as well. So it was a lot of street demonstrations, it was more than that? You know there were uh, an increasing number of demonstrations uh, as the 60s wore on and, you know, I, I was also involved in the freedom ride, the, the bus ride of students around northern New South Wales, uh, exposing the apartheid-like conditions that Australia's Indigenous people lived in and uh, joining with them in, you know, desegregating hotels and dress shops and uh, cinemas and swimming pools and so on. There was plenty developing in the 1960s in Sydney, as there was elsewhere in Australia, of course, and, you know, I was part of that radicalisation involved in the anti-war movement, solidarity with the National Liberation Front of South Vietnam, you know, the first uh, initial indigenous struggles and so on. So, yeah, uh, plenty going on. And, of 
because our eyes were opened by, you know, what was happening in Vietnam and also what was happening in Eastern Europe with the suppression of the Czech Spring by the Soviets and the, and the other Warsaw Pact powers. How difficult or easy was it to demonstrate in the 60s? Were the police pretty heavy? Well, the p- police were probably less heavy than they are now. I mean, there's been a militarisation and an expansion of the police force. Back then, you know, the only people in the 1950s who demonstrated were, you know, the waterside workers. They would clash with the police from time to time during strikes and pickets. So students demonstrating in large numbers was a a new experience for the police, and often they struggled to, to contain the demonstrations. They learned pretty quickly, and they were willing learners as far as, you know, roughing up uh, demonstrators and, uh, you know, throwing them around and giving them an occasional kick and so on. There's no doubt about that. But it was probably, civil liberties were probably easier to assert in the late 60s and into the 70s than they are now, to tell you the truth. What about South Africa? Can you talk a bit more about your opposition to apartheid in South Africa? the first big student demo uh, of the 60s was in 1960 in a response to the massacre at uh, Sharpville in South Africa where scores of uh, demonstrating, protesting uh, Africans were gunned down by the white apartheid police. That was the first real student political demo of the 1960s in Sydney. I was still at high school, but I knew people who were involved. And when I went to university in 62, I expected to be involved in that. But, you know, there were there was, at the time... Uh, there were ban the bomb marches at Easter and there was a platform for people opposed to atomic weapons in the domain. Sydney domain, like the Yarra Bank in Melbourne, was still a, a place where on Sunday afternoon uh, speakers of all kinds of political faiths and beliefs and positions would uh, you know, get on a box or get on a stage and, you know, and speak to people about the political issues of the time and there were hundreds and sometimes thousands of people there to listen to them. It was a political city, it was a smaller city, and there wasn't the internet and so on and uh, all the sources of information we've got now and kind of, there was no clicked activism that kept people at home. You know, you went out and you met people either on campus or at the domain or at public meetings or at demos and exchanged political uh, theories and, and analyses and so on. It was quite a rich culture that developed in Sydney in the 60s and well into the well into the 70s and of course by the end of the 60s the women's movement had appeared and the beginnings of the environment movement as well so the movement enlarged its focus and its interests as well as enlarging its numbers as the 60s wore on i'd like you to talk a bit more in detail about the the freedom ride and how it came to be well the freedom ride came to be came it rose out of a a demo we held in May of 1964 outside the US consulate in Sydney where we set up a burning cross and uh, protested about the filibuster that was going on in the US Senate against the Civil Rights Bill, uh, which you know extended voting rights and equality to, to um, Afro-Americans in many fields. And the Southern Democratic segregationist racist senators were trying to talk the bill into oblivion. So we protested at that, and it was a big protest, and it caught the police by surprise. And they came and they arrested, you know, half a dozen or a dozen people as they tried to break it up. But 
it, it led immediately to people asking the question, well, it's one thing to express solidarity with American blacks, but what about our local black population? What will we be doing about them? And so people met at Sydney University and decided that they would organise a bus tour in early 1965, imitating again the American Freedom Bus rides, uh, when we would go around northern New South Wales and expose you know, the oppression and the uh, disgrace and the poverty of what our First Peoples were enduring in northern New South Wales towns and, and mission stations. It arose out of, if you like, a protest about what was happening to American blacks to do our own thing here. And it was an incredible united front, if you like, effort, because the people involved were people from what you might call the right wing of the, of the Labor Party, um, members of the Communist Party, Christians of various stripes, and there are even one or two supporters of the country party or the nationals involved as well. It was a, you know, it's kind of a moral, moral question that uh, drew lots of people in. I mean, moral issues, whether it was dropping napalm on men, women and children in Vietnam or discrimination against people of colour, very strong motivators of the political awakening. In the, um, in the 1960s. How many put up their hands to go and were you all students? There were 35 of us that went. There was only one Indigenous person, there was only one Indigenous student at that time at Sydney. Oh, there were two. And the second one, uh, Graham Williams, he joined us halfway through the bus tour. So of the 35 students, two were Indigenous students. The, one of the ones, the main one, was Charlie Perkins, of course. He was a mature age student. You know, he was the spokesperson and probably the key organiser, uh, along with a bloke called Jim Spiegelman, who um, later on became principal private secretary to Gough Whitlam when he was prime minister and went on to be chief justice of New South Wales. And the other main organiser was Brian Ahrens, who was from a Communist Party dynasty, family dynasty. And Curthoy is another one from the Communist Party. She was heavily involved in organising as well. So, yeah, it was... a rather eclectic, heterogeneous mix of people involved. What was the plan? The plan was what we did, which was to collect information about how Indigenous people were living and to join with them in you know, doing what we could to change the conditions, whether it was you know, um, uh, trying to desegregate the Walgett RSL or a dress shop in the main street of Burke or... You know, the swimming pool at uh, Moree where you know, the big clashes with the white racists occurred um, halfway through through the bus tour and where we got, you know, run off the road and so on. In the bus by, you know, by racists in a truck that tried to turn the bus over. It was uh, quite a dramatic. It, what was interesting about uh, that bus tour and it showed some kind of change taking place in Australia was that the media was basically sympathetic and positive in their coverage of the bus tour. That was, I think, because it couldn't be seen solely as a communist front, uh, so it kind of evaded a lot of the Cold War um, prejudices that were still quite strong in Australia. You know, the issue was so, give the pun, so black and white, the disgraceful way we were treating our Indigenous people couldn't be ignored any longer. And there was a worldwide anti-racist mood on at the time and what we were doing chimed in with that and reinforced it and, and gave it some force. So would you say that no matter what you read on the subject that you were shocked 
by that what you saw on that trip? I mean, Henry Reynolds has written a book. The type is the the whispers at the bottom of our heart. I think that most Australians knew what we had done and what we were doing as far as our first peoples were concerned. I can remember going as a kid on holidays up the north coast in the 1950s and, you know, as we drove into town or to the beach or whatever, passing Aborigines walking to and from town, yeah, I kind of knew that their condition was not good. And in the mid-60s, we had an Aboriginal student from the Gulf of Carpentaria who had come to Sydney to study um, staying with us, boarding in our house for two or three years, 64 to 67. So I did have some knowledge, but of course there's nothing like actually going to the places, you know, where there's concentrations of Indigenous people and seeing, seeing what's going on and hearing their stories. Um, even with a bit of awareness, it, is a bloody, it was a bloody eye how safe did you feel on that trip? I'd imagine it would have been pretty scary at times. There were moments. There were moments in Moree. It was a Saturday and we were trying to, well, we were integrating the swimming pool and there was a hostile crowd of uh, hundreds, I suppose, and they were throwing eggs and, and tomatoes and other bits of fruit and uh, there was a hail of coins at one stage and people were ashing their cigarettes on the arms of, people holding placards outside the pool you know there are only half a dozen police rostered on that day so that was pretty um you know pretty tense and then probably the worst was on the when the bus was traveling at night from walgett to moree before we got to moree uh, we were run off the road about 10 o'clock at night i think it was by a couple of you know rednecks in a truck fortunately we had a good driver although the driver was too, you know, too nervous, too, too traumatised to go on, and so in Moree we had to wait for another driver to be flown up from Sydney to, to take over. So there were a couple of moments where, you know, it was tense and I suppose it was dangerous. But generally, you know, uh, while we faced some hostility, it wasn't violent hostility or massed hostility. How long were you away? The trip went for two weeks. Did you take media yeah, with media you? on the bus. Yes. Yeah, media on the bus. We put them at the back of the bus. And so, you know, and we were followed at one stage by a Channel 7, Network 7 um, camera crew. The Tribune, which was the Communist Party paper at the time, covered us uh, part, of the, part of the way as well. But, um, you know, that made some of the people on the bus very uncomfortable because, as I said, it was still hangovers from the Cold War. So... Any association with communists, even communist journalists, was um, was considered to be uh, you know negative and something that wouldn't do us any good. But anyhow, that was a kind of minor uh, irritation for some people. Not for us lefties who were on the bus, but because we thought it would do the communists good to be a bit of radical action. But anyhow, there you go. Did Charlie Perkins take the lead in the trip? Oh, Charlie Perkins was definitely the leader of the trip. He was the spokesperson, and when we had discussions about tactics and so on, Charlie's view um, invariably prevailed. Was there any thought that there might be retaliation against the local people once you'd gone? The number of local people who showed some solidarity or support for us was very, very small. 
One, a bloke called Bob Brown, as it turned out, turned out in Moree, uh, he'd been on Moree Council and he tried to get convinced council to desegregate the swimming pool and it got nowhere, it got no support whatsoever. He ran an uh, electrical goods shop in uh, Moree and there's no doubt about it, he, he got a lot of flack from the locals and in the end the racism proved too strong and he gave it away and gave council away and gave Moree away and moved, uh, moved to the coast. Now there were repercussions for him. The other one that I should mention was at Walgett, where when we were at Walgett, we were put up in the Anglican Church Hall. But after we'd been there a day, the complaints to the local reverend were such that he um, cancelled our invitation to stay in the church hall and you know, literally evicted us, told us we had to go, which is why we were on the road and why we got run off the road, uh, on the road from Walgett to Moree, is because quite unexpectedly we had to pack up and, and make tracks, again because of pressure in the town. But generally the uh, support we got was very, very, very um, quiet and you know, not many people you know, stuck their necks out. The, the towns were still pretty racist then. What happened is the campaign went on. Within a year in, in Moree, for instance, they lifted the ban on Indigenous kids coming to the local swimming pool at cinemas up the north coast and, you know, inland as well, Aborigines kept on um, doing their best to desegregate them. Because when we went to a place like Barraville, for instance, I think it was Barraville, near Kempsey, you know, there was a local Aboriginal girl, 16, that already started a campaign of trying to bust the colour bar at the local cinema. So people like Darcy Cassidy, who was you know, was active at Sydney University, for instance, and later on went to Melbourne and Adelaide, worked at the ABC. He organised small bus trips after the big bus trips to go and support Aborigines who were continuing the struggle in their towns and in their communities uh, all over New South Wales. So the bus trip, you know, was the beginning, I suppose, of what you might call white solidarity or white support for Indigenous justice. I know you went to Paris in or France in 1968 but just before that how did you fill in those couple of years before you went to France? Well I mean I when I went to Sydney University from 62 to 66 you know and as we've just been talking about the kind of things I was involved in and I edited the new and in 66 the university newspaper uh, which organized the sit down in front of the Johnson motorcade and President Johnson I came here in October of 1966. I taught for a year at a high school. Uh, at the end of 67, I did what lots of you know young Australians used to do in those days: set off for Europe. I arrived in Europe as a you know as a radical, would-be revolutionary student, just in time for the you know remarkable events of 1968, starting with the Tet Offensive and including the you know the May events in. In France, where there, you know there were battles on the barricades and a general strike involving 10 million workers, and the you know the Prague Spring when it's an attempt to give actually existing communism a human face, and yeah, I was uh, involved in that you know in the events of that remarkable year in London and, um, and and Paris. Talk about some of the people you met and some of the actions that you took part in. I mean, when I got to London, you know the anti-Vietnam War movement. Uh, was 
uh, at its height in London. In March and in October there were huge demos that involved marches on the US Embassy at Grosvenor Square and very big clashes with the police. In March we actually invaded the square and got within you know, meters of the, of the consulate. They were very dramatic events and, and you know, there were people like Tarek Ali who is still active as a, as a campaigner and as a writer and, and, and publisher who, you know, who has just stopped being, just ended his period as president of the Oxford Students' Union. Very aristocratic but very eloquent, uh, intelligent uh, and committed Pakistani who was in London at the time. You know, I met people like that in the, in the movement and in Paris. I met, you know, kind of uh, Marx theoreticians and, act, you know, active organisers like the former Trotskyist and revolutionary Marxist libertarian uh, socialist uh, Michel Raptus. That I, you know, I met leaders of the, you know, the student movement there. And then, lo and behold, uh, who should turn up in uh, Europe when I was there? But Brian Labor, who was a student leader in um, in Brisbane and an anarchist who'd found himself in Eastern Europe and got to Prague at the same time as the tanks rolled in and got uh, expelled from there and he had a tale to tell about what was going on in Eastern Europe as well. So what was happening in Australia was happening in spades in Europe. Things were happening in Germany, things were happening in Ireland, of course, in Northern Ireland. It was, again, a rich and radical culture. And let's not forget, uh, in 1969, in the Women's Liberation Movement, certainly made its appearance in Europe as well. And I think either in 69 or very, very early in 1970, it made its appearance in Australia as well. And so, you know, that really set the cat amongst the pigeons. You'll be listening to Sydney activist Hall Greenland talking about his activism over the years. Next week we'll hear the second part of that interview beginning with um, May in Paris in 1968. Something to look forward to. We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids and come in black, white, grey and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street or order by phoning 94198377 or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. I'm Jane Clifton, author, musician, actor, marriage celebrant, author of The Address Book. I've always been fond of 3CR, and not just because they played the song by my band stiletto, Woman in Trouble, 50,000 times. I was grateful for that, but that was a few years ago. Here I am again after all these years, and so is 3CR, still supporting musicians and writers and people with ideas to share. Keep going, 3CR. There are many and varied avenues for volunteer work, 
both here in Australia and overseas for those promoting peace. And one organisation which has a nearly 40-year history is Peace Brigades International. And Peace Brigades International Australia is one of the many PBI country groups currently supporting international projects in Guatemala, Mexico, Honduras and Kenya, where volunteers protect human rights defenders. With me is Ilo from PBI Australia. So Ilo, can you tell me what the situation was back in the early 1980s, which led to the foundation of PBI? So PBI, back in the 80s, early 80s, just was an idea that I think really came out of um, the Gandhian movement of Shanti Sena, which was a, a peace army that had a kind of a, a little experiment in, in India, which was quite successful, but uh, disintegrated. And that idea was floating around for quite a while. And so a whole bunch of peace workers, including people who were part of the Shanti Shani Peace Army, came together in, in Canada in 1980, 1981, and had a big meeting and said, well, let's try to get this idea off the ground, a peace army in which instead of doing peace work through arms, like the UN would do, let's do peace work unarmed, and try to build peace and create spaces for peace. So they came together, they had this great idea, but they didn't have anywhere to really implement it as such. In those years, Central America was quite a bubbling, difficult place and region, and uh, there was a petition that came to them from Guatemala and El Salvador to see if somebody somebody could come down there and do this type of peace work. And so that's when a year later, PBI Guatemala, or in that in those years it was called PBI Peace Brigades International Central America Project, came together and started a project between Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. And that's the whole process, isn't it? That we're Volunteers have to be invited in or PBI has to be invited. They don't just go off and decide we're going to save somebody around the world. That's correct. So PBI has, works on a very strict model of petitions uh, internationally. We won't go into countries that we haven't been invited in. So there has to be a, a formal petition from a grassroots organisation that asks us to come. So it can't be someone like another international organisation that says, hey, you guys should really go there. It needs to be someone who's in, on the ground, who's at risk, who would really benefit from our work. And so once we get that petition from a grassroots organization, um, then we go through a whole process of of doing uh, sending our volunteers in and just doing a little scouting mission and seeing if our work, if our model will actually work in that country because we don't, we, we don't know the context. So just getting the whole bunch of information. And sometimes it takes a couple of years before we say, yes, we would work, and yes, we have the capacity to do it. Other times we do that at work. And we, we come to the conclusion that, no, we don't have the capacity. So, yeah, it really, it really needs to be from them. What would stop you going? What, what sort of issues would you you'd say no? So PBI works under a model which is quite, it's quite dependent on the rule of law. You know, even back in the years when PBI started in, in the 80s, early 80s, in Central America, even though those countries, they say the rule of law wasn't as strong, they were still susceptible to international pressures. That's what allows our work to work. If, the, if international pressures work, then our work can work because we, we rely on international actors to put pressure on that government. We essentially are the eyes and ears of the international community. We're the ones that make noises and make a whole hoo-ha about them coming and looking at what's happening. 
So a country, for example, that doesn't have a strong rule of law or doesn't care about international pressures or is immune to that for some reason, it'll be harder. For example, Somalia at the moment would benefit greatly with peace work there. Except, uh, well, even though we haven't analysed it officially, just on the outskirts, I could I could probably tell you that it'll be hard for us to work there because the rule of law there is very weak and international pressures are not as susceptible. Oh, they're not as susceptible to international pressures. What other countries has PBI been working with or the people in those countries apart from Latin America? Currently we work with Kenya, outside of uh, Latin America. Kenya is the only country we officially work with or work in to do this kind of work. People wouldn't normally think of Kenya as a country that needed a peace brigaders. No, no, you wouldn't. But then again, we also had a project in the United States and Canada, doing field work with indigenous communities. This type of work, you can do it in any kind of area, given the right conditions. Kenya, when the petition came to us, we dis- we thought that we had a, a role to play there. It was right after elections, there was a whole bunch of violence that happened after the election, and we had fielded a temporary team just as election observers. And so when we uh, left that region or left that area after those elections, the petition came coming back, please come back, please come back. And so we, we had done a bit of groundwork there. We had already made relationships with communities and stakeholders. So we thought, well, we can stay in that area and work there. And that's kind of how we do it. And it's, it's, a, it's a new project. It's only a couple of years old, but it's already bearing a lot of fruit in terms of protecting human rights defenders. As you say, you're defending human rights defenders. What's the relationship that you have to have with government and government bodies in that instance? That's a very interesting relationship. You know, this is the model that PBI takes on. And the model that PBI takes on is to be as adherent to the law as you can. So one of the things that we always ask, we always try to do is become a registered NGO in that country where we're working in and get all the right permissions to be able to work there legally, Um, not as tourists, in other words. And so that really means that the government needs to be on our side or we need to be on their in their favour for them to give us those permissions. It's quite easy for any government if we call out, if we make too much noise or call out too heavily for them to turn around and and send us home. And that wouldn't be beneficial for anyone because then the protection that we can offer to human rights defenders would be gone from one day to the next. So we try to walk this very thin line of trying to call out human rights abuses but also trying to make sure that we are not too forceful as to make force a government's hand to kick us out. Um, or be on their bad side. And besides, PBI does a lot of work doing meetings with politicians, meetings with MPs, meetings with ministers and international community. So we need to be diplomatic about all the way we go about this or else those doors would close. effect wouldn't be as, as great. So in a sense, you're tolerated. Yeah, we are tolerated. We're very much tolerated. That's a good word. We are tolerated. We are tolerated. And sometimes it gets difficult to see where that line is between to- being tolerated and not being tolerated. So, so sometimes we're on thin ice. A lot of the times we're on thin ice. As you said at the beginning, it started as PBI International, then it became PBI Different Countries. How did that happen? I think through the learnings of the Central American project, we understood that um, certain countries had more, or certain uh, nationalities had a bit more, there were more consequences 
to certain nationalities and to others. So if something happened to, say, a French person, uh, the consequences weren't as dire as if it were to someone from the United States in terms of embassies and political pressure happening. So once that was kind of worked out or figured out, PBI quickly set up country groups in their countries of origin. So people who were French would set up a French PBI group, which wouldn't do peace work in their country in terms of the projects that were going on in Central America. More, It was doing more work on supporting those projects in Central America. So creating contacts with MPs, creating contacts with the parliament, creating contacts with other human rights organizations in the country and doing advocacy work on behalf of them so that our presence there had a bit of a bite, had a bit of a teeth. So if something happened to some of our volunteers while we were in the field with someone, international community can come in and say, hey, why is this person being uh, threatened? And on top of that, why aren't you protecting your own citizens? So that's kind of the idea. So through that, a whole bunch of um, country groups were set up, one of them being Australia. And the volunteers go off to these countries and they live in the communities that they're helping? In some instances, yes. In other instances, not so much. I think in the beginning, when PBI was quite young, that was the case. We would, um, what we call 24-hour accompaniment, which we would be with them constantly in the communities or in the houses or wherever it was. Um, now we're much more strategic in when and where we are because, I mean, the volunteers that go do all the work. There's very little paid staff. We do the admin work, we do the office works, we answer the phones, we do the emails, we do meetings with officials, UN, we go into the field, we hold meetings with community groups. So the volunteers do all the work, really, plus living and cooking and doing all the normal kind of housework together. It's a lot of work to do. And is it normal for more than one volunteer to be there as support for each other? Yes. So in terms of teams that are there. For example, every country does a different. For example, Guatemala has a team of 10 volunteers. Colombia has many different teams. Each, I think, is comprised of six or seven members. Mexico has two teams. One of them has five. One of them has four or five. So it just depends on the country. It depends on the way they want to do it. Each, each country, each project on the ground has quite a lot of autonomy as to how they can shape their teams and whatnot. So, yeah, and, and when we are on the field, when we're doing observation work, we're, we always go in pairs. So you're always there with a the buddy. You're never there on your own. And you were identified? Depending on the country again, but we wear a jacket or a vest, very clearly stating that we're PBI, that we're international human rights observers. Yeah. You went to Guatemala I did. in the last few years. For how long? Each project, you can only volunteer for a year. And you were there for a year? I was there for a year. Well, what was Guatemala like? When you were there, it's been a very, well, I suppose you could say unhappy country for many, many years. There was the peace process, but the killings continued. That's right. So when I was there, uh, Guatemala was still experiencing a high level of murders and deaths, especially to people who were defending their rights, so human rights defenders. Um, a lot of what we call mega projects, so dams, hydroelectric dams and, and um, mines, they were the main cause of human rights defenders either being threatened, hurt or injured or killed. So we were in a moment where it was very, very intense. We had a lot, a lot of work to do. We were out in the field quite often trying to make sure that we could at least, at least mitigate a little bit of these threats and these, these killings. 
And are these in the rural areas where the Indigenous people live? Yeah, so probably 80% of the people that we accompany were people who were are Indigenous and in rural areas. I mean, they do a lot of work in the cities, coming into the cities to hold meetings and to rallies and whatnot. But we were out in the out in the rural areas quite quite often. And they were the ones who were targeted by the military and the paramilitary over those civil war times. Most definitely, yeah. So they were very very um, very much targeted during those civil war times. A lot of those communities uh, were displaced. Many many of those communities up in the mountains uh, where the guerrilla fighters would train or hide or whatnot, a lot of those communities were completely obliterated and they had to move to the coast. So now you quite have quite an interesting vision when you go into the coast where you see uh, people wearing completely traditional clothing from the mountain area, but on the beach on with a 40-degree heat with humidity in the crazy areas, and they're wearing these warm traditional clothing. There's no way for them to go back. Well, there is, but it's very difficult. So the government has, hasn't done anything or has done very little in the way of making sure that these people go back to their, to their traditional lands. What they've done is um, at some times in some communities give them an Im- immunity in the terms of they won't put them to jail because they were aiding the guerrilla forces. But even then, Guatemala's state of uh, rule of law is very, at sometimes difficult to understand how they interpret it. And so a lot of the times many of these human rights defenders end up going to court or going to jail. And how do you accommodate that rule of law not being clear? Because you said before that you make sure you're going to a country where there is a rule of law. Yes. So um, the great thing about, or one of the things about Guatemala is that they are very susceptible to international pressures. They worry about the international image outside. They want Guatemala to be modern and great and new and amazing and have investors coming and you know, spend their, splash their money in Guatemala. So Guatemala is very much susceptible to that. Um, even though the rule of law is, is at moments weak, we still have uh, a leverage there by saying, well, or, or going up to, for example, we did a lot of work with the European Union. We would go up to the European Union and we would say, you guys have so many projects here, so many economic projects running, but Guatemala is breaking all these human rights laws around those projects. The government's allowing you to do this because because you want the money, blah, blah, blah. What is the EU going to do to make sure that Guatemala can keep up with its human rights obligations? And so that was a way for international community to come down in Guatemala and say, hey, what can you guys be better at with your, with your human rights? Um, not always works, but it's a way that we can put some pressure and at least give our the people we accompany temporary protection. Can you talk about some of the projects that you were involved with during your time there and the people that you were protecting, I suppose that's the word, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. So one of the projects that I was always um, amazed with was a human rights firm called The Human Rights Firm in Guatemala. The the person who ran it was this amazing middle-aged man who was born and raised in one of the slum towns of Guatemala City. And he grew up you know, in these slum towns fighting and, you know, you know kind of the, the macho fight and standing up for himself kind of way of life that you kind of have to have in, in, Latin, in a lot of Latin American cities. That kind of led him to, to become a professional wrestler. He became a professional Greco, Greco-Roman wrestler in the 90s. 
and was having a quite a successful career, one of the one of the greatest that had come out of Guatemala for a while. In 1997, for the Atlanta Olympics, he was going to go and travel to to com- compete in the Atlanta Olympics. He had a massive injury, couldn't go, decimated his career, could no longer wrestle, and he always tells us that in those in those times, those months, that he was uh, injured and couldn't move and was contemplating his life, his future. He didn't have now he didn't have a career to to follow. What was he going to do? He decided that. A lot of the Greek and Roman wrestling moves that he he had learned was about bringing a force that's coming to you and turning it around and bringing it back to them. And so he thought, how else can I do this? And he thought about his country, how he could help. He still traveled to Atlanta just to support his teammates. There, it was the first time he says that he actually got real news as to what the world saw of Guatemala and the violence in Guatemala and the human rights abuses that was happening in Guatemala. And it was the first time that he actually saw outside source as to what was happening in his country. And so all of that kind of came together and he said, I'm going to study law and I want to become a lawyer to help my people. And so he then went on, studied law. He tells us stories of all these crazy things that happened. He would travel to these really indigenous remote communities. People didn't want him there. He would sleep in a, in a metal shack and he could hear the machetes outside going, tugga, 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 tugga as just a way to intimidate him because no one liked him. Went through all of that. In the end, a couple of years ago, he took on the case against Efran Riosmont, which was the dictator that committed genocide in Guatemala. His firm took that case on. They won. The man was sentenced to, to jail. Unfortunately, two days, two or three days later, the courts reversed it, and the, co- the case is still ongoing. They, rever- they reversed the, the verdict of guilty. They said there were some inconsistencies in the trial, that they have to do a retrial. And that case is still ongoing. He and his firm have become a focal point as to all the human rights abuses that are having, happening to, in Guatemala. They, everything is taken to them. They do everything pro bono. They are amazing. He has done many tours around Europe and the States telling everyone of the plight of Guatemala. And he's, he's one of my... He's, I really look after him. What's it like to go into an area where, say, there's a mine or there's a, a dam being built and you know that there's human rights abuses happening. How do you go about doing your work? You introduce yourself to the people there, they tell you their stories, yeah. then you have to approach the people, the multinationals often. In Guatemala, what we would do is we would, uh, if someone said, hey, there's a human rights abuses happening in this community, can you come and check it out? We would always do a risk analysis, a context assessment, make sure that our presence there weren't gonna, wasn't going to make things worse, make sure that we were welcome to be there, and most of all, we were safe. We ourselves were safe, because if we can't do our job safely, then we're not protecting anyone. Um, once that we had established that, we, we would go to the communities, we'd make contact with the community members, speak to the elders, speak to the, to the leaders, get all the information that they wanted to give us, we'd sit down, have a big meeting, and then, de- depending on that information, we would either have meetings with local police a lot of the times, saying, hey, we're in the region, we're doing this work, we're working directly with this community, so you may get phone calls from us saying, what are you guys doing about their protection? We would also uh, meet with the governor of that area to, to essentially say, say the same thing. PBI Guatemala has a strict policy of not speaking to the companies more than anything because we don't want to engage with actors that we think we have little influence over 
and secondly because we want to make sure that our our image in terms of the community is not tainted by them seeing us going and chatting to corp- uh, the, the corporations and the companies. But we would sit down with police, we would sit down with personnel, we would sit down with the U- EU, the UN, to just tell them the plight, say, hey, have you heard about this community? Have you heard about these human rights abuses? We have direct contact. We, we were there the other day. We saw these things. And what sort of things were, did you see? Quite, quite a lot. Uh, me, my, myself... We were um, witness to a an eviction, a violent eviction, to a really peaceful resistance. I had been there two years blocking the entrance of a mine. And one morning we got the phone call about three in the morning to go there because the police had showed up. We were we went there, we showed up, and there was about 400 police members plus a big, one big um, excavation machine and the community members on the other side. What ensued in over the, in the next five hours or so was something horrible. There was a big clash, big conflict. Uh, the police started showing, throwing, um, firing gas canisters, the pepper pepper spray kind of gas canisters. They shot at a woman's head, and her head was cracked open, bleeding from from the face. They were shot at. Not with live bullets, I'm still speaking about the gas canisters. Shot the gas canisters as people's bodies and torsos. And in the end, the police had to resort to stone throwing. They threw stones at the protesters to make them leave the entrance of the of the mine. What could you do in a situation like that? In that situation, our our work is too late. Our work is all about prevention, preventing this from happening. Once it happens, it's very little the work that we can do in that moment. We were still there. We were still present. We documented everything. And there's a whole bunch of work that we can do afterwards in advocacy and calling it out and doing meetings and whatnot. But just our mere presence there was already a bit of a threat for them because the next day we ended up on the front page of the newspaper. Us, PBI International, ended up on the front page of the newspaper saying um, that these foreigners were causing trouble. And that ensued a whole bunch of problems for us. But, yeah, it's difficult. Once that happens, it's difficult, the work that we can do. Give me an example of when it's not too late, when you get there. When it's not too late. There's a lot of moments in when we can be preventing work, and it's hard to, to, to notice it. For example, we would go every Monday morning, we would go to a meeting for a community group, they would always meet. They were very much surveilled, very much under attack um, and get and threats a lot. So we would go every Monday to their community meeting. We wouldn't go inside because we didn't want to know what they were talking about or cared necessarily what they were organizing in terms of, of the resistance. What we, were, what we were doing there is sitting outside to make sure if anyone was watching them, that they knew that we were there and that they knew that we would react. So we would just sit outside for an hour, an hour and a half and just make ourselves visible. Even though you can't measure it, I think these presence, consistency, coming every week and being present and being visible is what dissuades, makes people think twice. Say, well, maybe these guys have some backing. Maybe I won't go and disturb the meeting or go throw a a rock through the window or whatever it is. It's hard to to have a tangible moment when this doesn't happen because you're measuring things that don't happen. So it's very difficult. But, yeah, uh, things like this, I always think we do great work. And the, the human rights defenders themselves tell us 
constantly that if it wasn't for us, they wouldn't be doing the work they do. What did that year in Guatemala mean for you? Oh, a lot. I think it changed a lot of what I expected and what I saw and changed a lot of my views on and, and even things like nonviolence and resistance and a whole bunch of things. Can you tell us about just maybe one or two of those defenders, maybe a, a man and a woman who sure. was stuck in your mind you know, a number sure. of years later? Sure. So one of them would be Lolita Chavez. Now she's an indigenous woman from the highlands of Guatemala, and she is a, a she defends her right f- for her land, her so land rights. But she's very, very powerful. She's a very short woman, as most of Guatemalans are, uh, always wearing her traditional dress. You know, on a personal level, quite timid. You know, doesn't really speak much. She's always asking, please, thank you, very, very much in her shell. But when she's out in a in a march or or on a speakerphone, she's completely different woman, formidable and strong and amazing and inspiring. And she has a, an amazing way to express such pain and anguish and injustice in such a tangible, very easy to understand, and emotional way in which everything just kind of makes sense. She has an amazing ability to do this. And not only that, she she's a strong feminist human rights defender as well. She They mix a lot of women human rights defenders in Guatemala, especially from the indigenous community, mix their land rights and the territory that they live on mixed in with their body because that all comes together. The The land in which they live is connected to their body in which they live in. And so uh, human rights abuses against the land are human rights abuses against them and their bodies. And human rights abuses against their bodies, machismo, and which is very prevalent in Latin America, is an abuse to their land and their land rights as well. So that's all very much mixed in. And it's just amazing to see a woman like that working in such a difficult situation. She's, she always stays in my, in my heart. What about children that you meet, maybe teenagers? We don't work so much with teenagers. Don't you see the kids around? And yeah, so, I mean, a teen, it's children and teenagers, and, well, children especially, are very much part of the, the resistances. Uh, they fight. They're just as much in the front lines as their families and their, and their parents. In that eviction we were talking about, they were in between. When the violence happened, they were moved away to further away, but they, they saw everything. And it can be very, very difficult for someone of that age to see that, but it just shows you how linked their land and their family and their bodies and their resources are all come together. This is not just professional activists as some people would, would 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 say here in the media, these are people who live there. They they always told me, I don't want to be fighting the police. I want to be growing my corn. The problem is they don't let me. So of course this is my livelihood. This is my life. I don't want to be an activist. I want to be a farmer, but I have to be an activist to defend my rights to be a farmer. How can people get involved? They can um, look us up on the website, PBI or Peace Brigades International, either the Australia branch. They can give us a call uh, or better shoot us through an email, see if they're interested, um, and we can get in contact and tell them how best it is to which project they would want to get involved in and when the selection processes are open for the different projects. And that was Ilo from Peace Brigades International Australia. Worthwhile endeavour to... Take yourself off to countries like that and put your life on the line with the people struggling against oppression and the loss of their land and devastation of their land. You're listening to Melbourne's community radio station 3CR.
It's 8.55 on the old digital, no, the old analogue, digital is 3CR, or you can be listening on streaming or podcast by queuing into 3cr.org.au. And it's now just on 4.52, and I'll be here until 6 o'clock tonight. We shall overcome. We shall. Pink Floyd global icon Roger Waters is speaking in Melbourne this Friday night, 9th of February, about why he cares so much about Palestine and what we can all do to support the movement for justice. Join us for this amazing opportunity to find out why this courageous political artist and activist has resonated with fans worldwide for decades and still does today. 8pm at the Athenium Theatre, Melbourne Town Hall. Tickets available at Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, apan.org.au. APAN is a 3CR supporter. The truth will set us free. And if you come from different parts of Melbourne, just talking about the Athenium Theatre, there's different ways of saying it, but um, most of us around here, we know it as the Athenium, and we know where the Athenium is. It's right next to the Melbourne Town Hall, but that's something to get along to on Friday evening. Hi, my name's Sarah. I love coming here because they offer vegan food. Hi, my name's Paul. This is my first time at Friends of the Earth. I think it's really awesome and the food's great, really healthy and nutritious. Friends of the Earth Food Co-op. 312 Smith Street, Collingwood. A tuneful experience. A 3CR supporter. 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au slash shop to buy online or drop into the station during business hours. Moving now to genetic engineering, and in particular, the organisation established 30 years ago to work toward a non-GM future and a more equitable and safer society. The director is well known to Tuesday Home Time listeners and 3CR in general, and that's Bob Phelps, and today we look at the past as well as the present and the future. Bob, you were there at the beginning of Gene Ethics Network? That's right. We founded um, Gene Ethics in January 1988, just at our 30th. What were you doing before that? You must have had pretty busy life. Oh yes, yes. I'd been campaigning on nuclear issues for a long time. I was at the Australian Conservation Foundation when the opportunity to set up a campaign on genetic manipulation technologies came in. Midnight Oil were concerned, said that they would give $50,000 a year for three years from the royalties on their album Species Deceases. So that was how it all began. What did you know about genetic engineering back then? Not a great deal, and indeed um, there were no industrial products of genetic engineering around, so it 
was a really an exploratory event at the beginning. In fact, in the very first year, 1988, um, I got an invitation from Monsanto to go to the USA to visit their world headquarters to see what they were doing and to be convinced that they were really on the right track. And so I did take up that offer at their expense, went to St. Louis, Missouri and saw the laboratories and talked to their research and so on and came away really convinced that uh, we should be running a campaign. What was it like in the laboratories or wherever? Well, it was huge. It was like its own little town, really, with a lot of stuff underground. Uh, They have their own postcode, and the world headquarters of Monsanto in St. Louis is really quite an impressive structure. The thing that uh, hangs in my memory is going into the dairy where they were uh, experimenting with bovine growth hormone. Bovine growth hormone was an injectable hormone for cows to increase their milk production, and uh, it was never... A really a great success. Um, it was only uh, approved and used in the USA. Canada and a lot of other countries where they wanted to sell it and simply refused. Every attempt that they made, including trying to bribe officials in Canada, failed to have them take it up. Of course, it makes the cows sick. They don't milk for as long. You know, you get three or four years out of a cow uh, when you're using bovine growth hormone, whereas typically you know, eight to ten years for grass-fed, open-range dairy cows, say, in Australia, is pretty typical. Uh, Nothing much happened about that until, of course, now 30 years later, the Australian Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority is currently considering a proposal for the introduction of that hormone into Australia. It's now owned by Eli Lilly because Monsanto realised it wasn't the money spinner they thought. Eli Lilly wants to sell it in Australia. But already we've got Fonterra, for instance, saying there's no way any of our dairy producers are going to be using bovine growth hormone. So there are many connections right through the 30 years of this campaign from 1988 on. What were you told about their plans for the future for GM? Did they let you into any little secrets? Well, they were already into the plant breeding, but of course it was another eight years before they came up with any crops that could be marketed and uh, they made those crops soybean corn canola cotton sugar beet now more recently they have made them a tolerant of course of their main chemical roundup so that they could sell the seed and the chemical package because they knew that their chemical was going to come off patent uh, in the early 2000s and that by making farmers more dependent on the use of the chemical they'd also be able to sell the seed at a premium, which was patented, of course, continue to sell their Roundup herbicide, and that's the position that we're in today. Something like 80% of all the GM crops being grown continue to be Roundup tolerant, so you spray more often and at higher doses over your crop, and Monsanto benefits from selling the seed and the chemical together. It's really a win for them, but the steam is starting to run out of that system, and... uh, Our efforts over the 30 years, of course, have paid off as well. I think we could say that for the first 10 years, we were very much engaged in public education, trying to get our materials, uh, which we called the troubled helix, a play on the double helix, uh, into high schools, and we did a lot of that. We sold many hundreds of copies into uh, schools around Australia, tried to educate students about a precautionary approach to the new biological technologies. In the second decade, say from 2000 on, after a lot of work and 
several reports, including uh, genetic manipulation, the threat or the glory, which was a federal government report, and also another from the Senate called uh, GM Fish Don't Lay Tomatoes, uh, which was uh, quite a lot of fun. There was a, uh, a regulatory system set up in 2000, which is still in place now. Their first um, approval, major commercial approval, was for GM Canola in 2001. They gave a tick, but with a lot of effort and sweat, we managed nationally to get a five-year moratorium on the growing of GM Canola in Australia, and uh, that wasn't broken until 2008 when after some pretty uh, shonky inquiries, Victoria and New South Wales decided that they would allow the growing of GM herbicide-tolerant canola, and in 2010, WA went the same way. Cotton came along as well in 1996 with the first um, tests of GM cotton, and that was subsequently approved as well. So that's really where we are with the GM crops at the moment, just the two crops being grown in Australia and certainly the canola not going gangbusters by any means. About 10% of the crop in New South Wales and Victoria and about 30% of the canola crop in WA. But the reason that the government's put the moratorium on at that time and remains true today is that there are quite substantial premiums for GM-free canola, particularly into the European market. So the vast majority of growers are still not interested in growing GM because they can earn extra money by growing GM-free canola and having it sold into the European market where the Canadians were locked out uh, because they, of course, had begun to grow GM canola there as their um, dominant varieties. I remember you telling me many years ago that you don't have to understand science to understand the process of GM. Well, I think it's more that you don't have to understand science to understand the issues the issues are about uh, precaution, protecting the environment, making sure that public health and safety are protected, and that uh, is the main basis for the regulatory system that we have. Um, precaution is written into the law, and uh, taking a precautionary approach to human health, safety, and the environment is there in the law. What we see now, of course... Uh, which is rather unfortunate, is that uh, the governments of Australia are currently considering a review of the Act, which was passed in 2000. It's one of the regular reviews that they do, but this time they're talking about some rather major changes because in the meantime, over the last five years, some new genetic engineering techniques, which promise a lot more than the earlier ones and... Uh, would be much more invasive and uh, potentially could change any living organism. Those are coming online now. There's talk of them coming out of insects, plants, animals, and a whole raft of other organisms coming out of the laboratories. And, of course, it's also being used in human genetic manipulation for medical and other purposes. There's a new debate going on now, a new ball game, our regulators are saying that they want to exempt some of those new techniques only recently discovered and developed from any regulation at all, uh, even before they've got a history of safe use, and even acknowledging that many of these uh, new techniques have off-target impacts not only on the organisms that are being engineered but potentially 
on our environments as well. So we're engaged at the moment in a very big discussion and debate over the new uh, techniques. People may have heard of CRISPR, for instance, which is a new way of cutting and pasting DNA, which they say is more efficient, cheaper, quicker. Of course, these are the sorts of things that they said about genetic engineering when it was first being developed 30 years ago. <laughs> that doesn't stop them from uh, repeating themselves and writing the new good news book and ignoring the problems. We're um, working very hard to make sure that our governments stick by what they decided, keep the law intact, have everything regulated, and take a very, very precautionary approach on these new, fantastic new promises that are being made about the new genetic manipulation techniques. Talk about the network itself, Bob. You're the director. Who are those people with you? We have a national network of some 5,000 uh, interested people whom we uh, communicate with uh, very frequently and often. And a number of other groups have um, popped up along the way as well. Friends of the Earth has their new and emerging technologies campaign, for instance, which has been going for some 10 years. There's the Mothers Are Demystifying Genetic Engineering has been um, mobilising women to get behind the GM-free view about uh, our food supply. Then we've got Food Watch in Western Australia, which is running an incredibly good campaign there. And in fact, the new Labor government just um, elected last year is currently engaged in an inquiry in the Parliament to see about having farmer protection laws in order to compensate automatically anyone whose land becomes GM contaminated as a result of the previous government's decision to allow GM canola to be grown there. And there have been cases, the celebrated case of course is Marsh versus Baxter in which the organic grower was decertified, lost a considerable amount of money but couldn't get compensated through the courts. And now the Food Watch campaign, together with our other national campaigns, has successfully got this um, inquiry going. And we're very hopeful that Western Australia will soon have a, a method of collecting levies on the sale of GM seed. It's too late, unfortunately, to roll the GM canola industry back. To collect a levy on the seed in order to compensate anybody who becomes GM contaminated, then we can start talking about uh, reducing the size of the GM industry, also making it publicly known where GM crops are grown, which until now has been secret. We're a multi-pronged, multi-organisational organisation now, and uh, we've also got our GM Free Australia Alliance of Groups, which just this coming weekend will be having its national meeting in Adelaide where we'll also be having a uh, forum in the lead-up to the election in March there. Because, of course, South Australia, Tasmania, ACT, Northern Territory remain GM-free even despite the fact that GM cotton and GM canola are approved for growing in Australia. Are there similar groups to yours in other countries? Oh, many, several and many, yes, particularly in Europe and North America, of course, they're very, very active indeed. But there are pushes now for industrialisation of agriculture, including GM in Africa especially. The civil society citizens groups there are very, very active indeed in saying no to genetic manipulation technologies and their crop products as well. Africa was very involved 
in uh, the negotiation of an international biosafety treaty, uh, which is part of the Biodiversity Convention. They are very, very precautious, with the exception of South Africa, I sh should say, about uh, the introduction of GM and the industrialization of their agriculture because they can see that in Asia especially, it's led to the aggregation of land. A lot of small and uh, poorer landholders have lost their lands. Their capacity to feed themselves has gone. Uh, they become marginalised people in the big urban centres and cities. The Africans especially are resisting that trend. So most of the genetically manipulated crops in the world are still grown in North and South America and they go principally into animal feed and into the production of uh, biofuels, which of course is the emerging alternative to petrol, which is running out. The scene is constantly changing. Uh, we've got new technologies on the scene, and uh, there's still certainly a campaign to be run about genetic manipulation, not only in those organisms that I've mentioned, but also in the human health area as well, where... Um, manipulation of human genetic material is also being researched uh, on a large scale. Talk a bit more about that. Well, uh, the dream of the perfected human being, of course, is always um, out there, the eugenic idea that we can actually make human beings that don't have faults where nothing goes wrong. People have dreams of immortality, of course. So all of these kinds of undercurrents drive the idea that... Um, our reproductive technologies also can be perfected. IVF, the surrogate production of children, these are all very, very hot and current debates. With gene screening, in order to identify any fetus that's got a, um, a defect in inverted commas so that it can be aborted. Another project for creating the kind of master race that was thought about particularly in the USA and Germany in the first half of the 20th century, uh, is still alive that uh, somehow or another we can fix human ills, that we can uh, do this um, well. But the ethics and the morality of, of all this is uh, needing a lot more public debate and discussion than it gets at the moment because uh, the trend is to more uh, genetic manipulation, more intrusion into... Um, into the, the, the makeup of the human population. It tends, though, to ignore the social and cultural context in which people live, which is often the thing that triggers dysfunction. We need good societies. We need peaceful societies in which people can lead good lives. And the idea of genetic perfectibility, I think, is a flawed one. I'd imagine over those past 30 years you've had the opportunity to travel overseas to speak with like-minded people and also to invite like-minded people to come here to Australia. Yes, yes, we've had a number of visitors over the years. They've been good tours. Geoffrey Smith came. Uh, we're having another tour this year. Jonathan Latham, who's um, one of our colleagues in North America, who's uh, uh, British, who originally was a genetic scientist himself uh, will be touring with us in August so that's going to be very good too I think Shiv Chopra came he was a Canadian public servant who was one of the people that um, Monsanto tried to um, talk into accepting the bovine growth hormone all those years ago and Shiv until his um, recent passing was um, constantly active 
on um, drawing attention to the uh, underbelly of genetic manipulation techniques because, of course, one of the connections that often isn't mentioned is that the U.S. military in particular, but other militaries as well around the world, are very, very interested in uh, the genome, the human genome, and uh, the genetic makeup of other organisms for a variety of military applications and purposes. So, for instance, there's a, one of the new technologies is called gene drives. Now, gene drives are a genetic construct that you can put into, uh, say, a population of mosquitoes. The idea is that you'll drive the gene through, which will destroy the fertility of mosquitoes and wipe them out totally in order to, to control malaria. Now, it sounds like a good idea, but, of course, mosquitoes do play some role in the ecology of the world and it's got to be thought about very carefully that you would wipe out another proposal is to get rid of um, rats and mice on islands and so the US military is uh, funding gene drive research around the world including in Australia and uh, there are some proposals here to conduct experiments using gene drives on offshore islands well, we saw just a decade ago with the Kalichi virus research uh, for killing rabbits that when they put it on Wardang Island off South Australia, it wasn't more than a couple of days before it got onto the mainland and itself prematurely spread itself through the rabbit population of Australia. Their idea of containing these things, of uh, keeping them secure, is uh, very, very poor indeed. There is a move internationally to very seriously regulate if not ban the use of gene drives because of their potential to uh, make whole populations extinct. How difficult is it to keep up with all these techniques that are they thinking about? It's not that straightforward but I think the thing to say about it if uh, for those who are interested in campaigning or knowing more about this is that as I said before the issues are the thing. The technology you can become quagmired in looking at the technology and thinking, oh, this technology is going to be good or bad, it's going to have all these applications, it works in this way. You can get too quagmired in the nuts and bolts. But when it's all boiled down, we want a society which uses technology in an intelligent way that doesn't threaten human health and the environment, respects people's cultures, that is peace-oriented, not war-oriented. These kinds of values should run through the development and production of all technologies because, as we know, all technologies, despite sometimes having many benefits, say IT, for instance, can also have many, many negative spin-offs and impacts. So we need to think strategically. We need very early when new technologies and their products are proposed for production and sale to have a thorough discussion about what they're going to mean, what they're going to do, who they're going to affect, both positively and negatively, and whether we really want or need them or not. Because we're on this treadmill of thinking we're a technological society, we have these problems, a lot of them are created by technologies, oh, we'll just create another new technology which is going to fix up the problems that we've created. Say the problems of the chemical age, for instance, and plastics. We've got a, a now enormous 
problems worldwide of synthetic chemicals invented since the 1930s, originally for war making in the Second World War uh, and in the First War too. Now we need to clean up the world. The feedstock for these things is running out. Petrochemicals are declining. Soon we're going to have to do without the plastics and the chemicals that are polluting our sea, killing all our aquatic um, species, wrecking our lands as well. So we need new regenerative and sustainable agricultural systems. We need new, new regenerative and sustainable cities that are not dependent on the car, go for public transport instead. Uh, and it's the same with the biological sciences. Let's not create monsters. We need to get a bit more savvy about the technologies that we use, make sure before we start deploying them that they're not going to have major downsides as well. Wondering also, Bob, how easy it is to get the information about these new technologies. Is it public knowledge or do you have to go delving down into whatever? Well, there are a number of different levels, of course. On the web there is an enormous amount of discussion and debate about CRISPR, the main new GM technique, and about these other things. And many of the articles um, that are written there are in, and in the newspapers too are really quite accessible because as well as saying, gee whiz, isn't this great new technology going to be great, the downsides are also discussed. And indeed, the Convergence Science Network on the 13th of February is having a big forum, unfortunately it's booked out, at the um, convention centre on South Bank. Some 1,000 to 1,500 people there, I imagine, to listen to Jennifer Doudner, who originally was the co-inventor of the new CRISPR techniques, the new genetic manipulation techniques, and Kevin Asvelt, who's also an expert in this area and has been working with the gene drives that I talked about, but has come to the point where he said these things are potentially so dangerous that we need to think very, very carefully indeed about whether or not whether or not we're going to allow them to be used. Those two will be debating with each other and being asked questions on Tuesday of next week in the convention centre. So I imagine that there'll be quite a spillover from that into the general media. This discussion must be, going, must be ongoing, but it needs to have at its core the ethics, the morality and the wisdom of whether or not the things that are offered and promised by the new genetic manipulation techniques will actually be as dangerous and as disappointing as the old 20th century techniques that have been talked about and that we've been campaigning against for the last 30 years. The future, new challenges, I think you've talked about most of them, haven't you? The new challenges are the new techniques, but we also need a new way of thinking about technology, about emerging technologies generally. We're in many crises. We're in the third extinction, which is human-caused extinction of other species in the world. Our agriculture is becoming more fragile as the climate changes, as oil runs out, as phosphates are depleted. Industrial farming cannot continue. So we need new regenerative, environmentally friendly, socially friendly uh, systems for sustaining humans, or in fact we may be the final fatality of this third extinction which is going on now. We're the cause of it and we may be its main victim if we don't get our act together and think very, very seriously 
about what we what direction we want to go in what future generations can expect us to leave for them we are responsible for the present we should leave the earth at least in as good order as we found it and already it was very very compromised so i think we have a task to make the world a better place and to make sure that it is regenerated and sustainable for human habitation for future generations and that was the very hard working director of the gene ethics network bob phelps coming up soon we'll be looking at what's happening in venezuela We know you love our 3CR Radical Radio t-shirts, and so do we. They're a bargain at $20 for adults and $15 for kids, and come in black, white, grey, and a cool light blue. To nab one of these beauties, drop into the station at 21 Smith Street, or order by phoning 9419-8377. Or you can visit us online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Come on, you know you want one. Ali MC and the Footscray Community Arts Centre present Rohingya Refugee Crisis in Colour an exhibition that delves deep into the heart of the ongoing Rohingya refugee crisis. Featuring photography from both Ali MC and Rohingya refugees, a short documentary and stunning aerial drone footage. Head down to the opening at Footscray Community Arts Centre, 6pm on Thursday, February 8. The exhibition runs from February 9 until March 10. For more information, visit footscrayarts.com. A 3CR supporter. We shall overcome. We shall. Pink Floyd global icon Roger Waters is speaking in Melbourne this Friday night, 9th of February, about why he cares so much about Palestine and what we can all do to support the movement for justice. Join us for this amazing opportunity to find out why this courageous political artist and activist has resonated with fans worldwide for decades and still does today. 8pm at the Athenium Theatre, Melbourne Town Hall. Tickets available at Australia-Palestine Advocacy Network, apan.org.au. APAN is a 3CR supporter. The truth will set us free. And of course, for Melbourne listeners, that is the Athenaeum Theatre. And for Melbourne listeners, you'd know that the Athenaeum Theatre is just up the hill a wee bit from the Melbourne Town Hall. But do get on to APAN, A-P-A-N, to find out just how to get there on Friday night. I think you're asked to be there at 7.30 for an 8 o'clock start, not to be missed. Like in Canada and in Australia, they cannot discharge tailings directly into the riverways. But in Pogara, they discharge their tailings in the waterways and they kill us and they say it's okay. You are just being killed for trespassing. Subscribe to 3CR, bringing you voices and opinions the mainstream media don't dare touch. 
they have the exclusive right to extract the minerals below six feet, but that exclusive right does not permit them also to kill people. Who does the killing? The company has uh, specially arranged security forces. Subscribe today. Call 9419-8377. It would appear that there can be no discussion about Venezuela without focusing on the economy as the corporate media does to predict the imminent fall of the Maduro government. For another viewpoint, I'm speaking with Fred Fuentes, journalist and author. So Fred, let's start with that economy. What's the reality for people on the ground and then an understanding of why it's such a crisis situation? Oh, I think, look, there's no there's no denying the fact that the reality on the ground in Venezuela today is extremely difficult, extremely harsh for ordinary Venezuelans who have had to deal with a situation of essentially what, you know, you would call hyperinflation, which is three, if not potentially four-digit inflation rate over the last year, two years. Uh, at random times, extreme scarcity of particular basic goods, you know, including medicines, and that tend, tend to fluctuate, but that's sort of an ongoing issue that Venezuelans have also had to deal with. All of these, uh, you know, make uh, everyday life for ordinary Venezuelans ex- extremely hard. The kind of things that only a few years ago uh, were seen as essentially uh, easy, accessible, ordinary parts of everyday life are, are increasingly hard. Uh, of course, the real question then is how to explain this, this situation, what is behind this situation, how did we go from a country that was only a few years ago really sort of breaking records when it came to sort of international standards of improvement in everyday living and improvements in the kind of social indicators. To give one example, the Food and Agriculture Organization, the UN body, uh, that measures things like, for instance, uh, malnutrition, hunger, had you know praised Venezuela's efforts in eradicating uh, malnutrition uh, in that country. And of course now we find a situation where, as I mentioned before, we have scarcity of certain products that have made it a situation where it's not uncommon for Venezuelan families to be able to go perhaps without uh, you know, a meal a day, uh, or, you know, missing a meal a day uh, because of their inability to find certain basic goods or to be able to afford them when they are able to find it. And I think really if we want to start to grapple with why this situation has occurred, of course the media will focus on two aspects and that is the drop in oil prices that Venezuela has experienced over the last few years and the impact that that has had on a, an economy and on a government budget, uh, which is largely dependent on the money from the sale of oil. Uh, secondly, again, which is always a big part of media focus, is the problems with the Maduro's economic policies, and I think there are you know, many, many issues or many criticisms that could be made of particular policies uh, that have been adopted, or perhaps more accurately, uh, policies that have not been adopted by the Maduro government uh, that could help in dealing with the current uh, situation. But the third one, which is almost never mentioned or ignored or played down in the mainstream media, is, is the actual attempts both internally and externally to wreak havoc on the Venezuelan economy uh, in order to further worsen an already bad situation uh, with the ultimate aim of bringing down the, the Maduro government. And we see that, whether it be, for instance, externally, outside of the country, 
through the kind of financial uh, sanctions that have been imposed on the Venezuelan government, which essentially means that it's unable to get access to financial markets, to US dollars, to be able to buy the kind of imports that it desperately needs in order to be able to uh, fill in the shortfalls or in scarcity of products. Uh, so it's not that the Venezuelan government doesn't have the money to be able to find these products that are missing on the market. It's that they can't actually you access the banks to get the dollars uh, to do the transactions that are required in a globalised economy to be able to get those in. And they can't do that because specific sanctions have been imposed on the Venezuelan government and specific actions are being taken by banks to deny them their access to that. And internally as well in Venezuela, we've seen the actions of corporations who, sensing that they would benefit from a change in government, have also been working to undermine the economy, whether that be by essentially a firing workers, closing down factories, reducing output, uh, all of with the aim of, as I mentioned, worsening the economic situation and ultimately hoping that this will turn the people against the government. Well, that's the whole point of sanctions, isn't it, from overseas? Well, yes, of course. Uh, this, is, this is the irony uh, that the US government says that it's doing the sanctions to help the people. But the actual reality, and you will find that even some of the most harshest critics of the Maduro government will point out that the sanctions are actually hurting the very people that the US government and other, other governments that are involved in sanctions are claiming, claiming to be supporting. Uh, you know, should distinguish here because, of course, the media like to focus on the very specific sanctions that have been imposed on individual state or um, state officials, you know, denying the ability of certain state officials to be able to get visas to enter the, to enter the US, uh, uh, you know, supposed freezes on any account that they may have in the US, uh, even though there's no evidence that being presented by the US government that they do have any accounts in, in the US. That's been the focus to try to create this idea that the sanctions are very specifically targeted against the, the Maduro government and individuals within it. But the actual reality of it is the sanctions go much further than that, as I mentioned, particularly the kind of sanctions that have been imposed on financial transactions, on access to US dollars, on, on, on the Venezuelan government's ability to access the banking sector outside of the country. And all of these are very, very crucial to explaining the, the kind of scarcities that, are, that have occurred in certain products, uh, the kind of economic problems that the uh, Venezuelan people are facing, are facing today. And, and that's why even amongst the opposition within Venezuela, very few are willing to come out and, and openly support the sanctions because they know that within Venezuela the sanctions are, are, are deeply unpopular. But, of course, the US government is perhaps more interested in kind of trying to send a message internationally of trying to isolate the Venezuelan government than it is in particularly trying to win over the, the Venezuelan people to their cause. You've explained why the US have sanctions. Why the UK and why France? Why are they pushing for sanctions and moves against the government? The real reason that we see this sort of push internationally uh, by governments to either adopt sanctions against Venezuela or, uh, if not going that far, certainly to call into question... Um, the legitimacy of the Maduro government, and in particular, over the last few years, we've seen a, a, a range of uh, electoral processes that not long ago were widely recognised and accepted and, and seen as some of the most fairest elections in the world uh, by almost every government uh, in the world, uh, now calling to question the results of those elections by governments, in, particularly in, in, in Europe, as, as you mentioned. I think the, the, the real reason behind this is because the Venezuelan opposition 
and the US government, both in tandem, working together, uh, and that, you know, the links between the two are, are very clear and being established for a long time. This is you know, nothing new, nothing conspiratorial. They're very open about the, the close working relationship um, that exists uh, between Washington and the, and the Venezuelan opposition. I think both sides recognise that internally within Venezuela, and the balance of forces are not there for them to be able to remove the Maduro government immediately. But to clarify that, that does not mean that, for instance, given presidential elections are scheduled for this year, that the opposition couldn't win an electoral vote. But really what the opposition is hoping for is to get rid of the Maduro government and anything that has to resembles what has been built up by the Maduro-Chavez movement over the last essentially two decades, uh, to destroy all of that in order to return Venezuela to the old system that used to have the old system where it's just a traditional political elite who ran everything. They know that internally within Venezuela, they're unable to do that because the balance of forces just doesn't allow them. They do not have a majority support either amongst the poor sectors of Venezuelan society or the military. And they would require at least one of or both of those sectors to really come on their side to be able to complete the kind of project that, that they want to see. So they hope that through international pressure, they can hope to sh shift that internal balance of forces in Venezuela in their favour so that they can carry it out. And we see that, for instance, very explicitly with, for instance, the US Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, currently on a tour through Latin America, making it explicit, making it clear, making the reference to Chile, to the Pinochet dictatorship in 1973, and referring to Venezuela and saying how mil the military in Latin America has always been key in trying to resolve these kind of political situations. Essentially an open call for a support for a military dictatorship in Venezuela with a clear reference in his comments to what occurred uh, in Chile. So we see that this is really what, what has to do with international pressure that he's building. Uh, it's hoping to do what it's unable to do, what, what the Venezuelan opposition cannot do on its own, internally with its current social support base within the country, uh, which is to you know, not just remove Maduro, but eradicate everything that has to do with Chavismo and the Bolivarian revolution that has been unfolding in that country for the last two decades. What's known about the military in Venezuela in 2018? I know they've been great supporters, or the, the, the leaders of the, the military have been great supporters of Chavez and then Maduro, but we, we don't hear anything. What do you hear? I think the, the reality is that, firstly, because Chavez came from the military, and secondly, that because there was an attempted coup against Chavez by an important section of the hierarchy of the military in 2002, that the, the, the Bolivarian process, Bolivarian revolution as a whole, has made a specific effort to try to politically win over the armed forces uh, to its project. And it's done that through a variety of means. Yep, yeah, so they've, they've been, you know, almost from the, from the, the day dot, Chavez has attempted to involve the military in both the kind of social programs uh, that the government has carried out. And so, for instance, one of the first social missions that the government did was to, to send in the military into poor neighbourhoods and rather than repress, as they used to do before, help them to build houses for those that were living in, 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 in dilapidated homes, those that were living at most at risk. The government has also involved the military in, in, pro, in national projects that have been of, of great importance and really allowing those in the military to fill a really a, a real role 
in Venezuelan society. Not a role that is separated out from the people, but that is integrated with the people. Uh, so this has been really important, to, I suppose, ensuring that today, I think what we see in Venezuela, and of course, it, uh, the one thing about a mil- any military in the world is, is usually the is military is very difficult organisation to know exactly what is occurring inside. But one certainly gets a sense that today in, in Venezuela, the military is very much a military that is willing to stick by the constitution. Is very much a military that will not be open to being used by foreign powers to achieve political ends within the country. And so I think in that regard, that still would seem unlikely, certainly far from likely a possibility, where uh, some kind of a military coup could occur in Venezuela today. What you've talked about the last few minutes is the impact of sanctions and political machinations within the country on the ordinary Venezuelans and how they're suffering. What about the middle class and the elite? Well, the, the, the reality is, is that what we've seen over the last, certainly over the last two years, but probably predating that, it's just in the last two years there's been a, a, a sharp acceleration of that, is, is immigration of those sectors outside of the country. Uh, so those that have the money have the ability, uh, have been leaving the country in order to be able to shield themselves uh, from this kind of uh, situation. Taking their money with them? Oh, absolutely. Well, that's, that's exactly been another part of, of the sort of situation that's been occurring. And when I say taking the money with me, I'm taking the money with me, I'm talking about, yeah, sort of, you know, the, the more wealthier sections of, of Venezuelan society. Obviously, middle-class families, they're... The amount of money they may have is not going to have a dramatic impact on, on the Venezuelan economy as a whole. Although, certainly, it, one issue that it does have is, is a kind of brain drain that, you know, sort of what happens, you know, everywhere in, in the so-called third world. Professionals, uh, people with some kind of uh, academic background or university education, university training, usually uh, very often go to more developed countries where they're able to get a, a higher wage for for their expertise, for their knowledge. We're seeing that in, in a real sort of super speed uh, motion occurring in, in Venezuela where we're seeing large sections of Venezuelan population are moving out of the country. So that's been another, another contributing factor. So, of course, it, it has had a big impact uh, on the middle class uh, in Venezuela. And then it's also led to, for those middle class sectors that have remained within the country, certainly amongst them who have been, whilst not always, and certainly even not today, a solid block support base for the opposition, have tended to side more with, with the opposition over, over the last two decades. And what we've seen over the last couple of years is a, a real intensification of, of the ferocity of their opposition to the government, and in large part explained by the sort of several months of violent protests that we saw in Venezuela uh, last year, one that left a, a death toll, you know, uh, over of 100 people uh, in, in a couple of months of, of street protests and certainly is, will be a, a key part of any kind of opposition electoral campaign that occurs this year uh, for, president, for the presidential elections. You spoke a moment ago about Tillerson in Chile. What impact is the move to the right in Latin America, in South America, having on Venezuela at this moment? Well, I think it's having a big impact in, in two ways. I, you know, I think certainly from the government's viewpoint, it's, it's obviously made it much more difficult because it, it is constantly facing diplomatic moves 
aimed at trying to isolate it in the region in the context where only a few years ago we had this sort of broad process of, of regional integration that was seemingly bringing the, the, the continent together. Uh, instead, what you have is this sort of almost bizarre media spectacle that is created uh, where you have, for instance, a country like Brazil where you have an illegitimate president who was installed by a parliamentary coup, where you have a president in Honduras who was uh, recently supposedly elected in fraudulent elections where literally the vote tallying machine had him losing by 5%. The computers went off and then when they came back on, he was winning the race. Uh, we have all these sort of scam presidents in the region uh, who have been you know, very clearly illegitimately installed into power, but who because they align with the political interests of Washington, are presented in the media as the Democrats of the region who are criticising and, and attacking Venezuela. So that's, that's obviously made the diplomatic situation very difficult for Venezuela. But it's also given ammunition or given motivation for the opposition within Venezuela who, who really much sense that now is the time. There's no certainty that this sort of shift to the right will remain as it is in, in Latin America. And in fact, we've seen in certain electoral processes, uh, the left going quite strong and sometimes winning those elections. So the, the right know that now is a time to seize and to really make a move for it. And so I see that's a big part as well of explaining the sort of situation in Venezuela where many people on both sides of the political divide feel it's, it's, it's do or die in terms of can they obtain their political aims. You are listening to Melbourne Community Radio Station 3CR. My name is Jan Bartlett and I'm speaking with Fred Fuentes, journalist and author, about the reasons for the situation today as it is in Venezuela. Well, just staying with that internal political system, the municipal elections were held last December. The opposition boycotted. Why? I think the opposition boycotted in the context where only a few months before there had been gubernatorial elections. And whilst the opposition, or at least certain sections of the opposition, which the media amplified uh, their calls and said there was, there was fraud, the actual reality is that the opposition know that there wasn't fraud in those elections. And what they had was a situation where their own support base was quite divided uh, as to what to do in the face of those gubernatorial elections. Because... Those gubernatorial elections occurred only months after several months of violent street protests where the you know opposition leaders had come out saying, this is it, this is the end, the regime's going to fall, you know, this is the only way to bring it down, elections are not possible, the only way to bring it down is through street protests, uh, through the kind of mobilisations they were carrying. Those protests didn't succeed, and then all of a sudden the same leaders who were calling for the country to be burnt to the ground in order to, to bring down the government were coming out to tell their supporters that it was all necessary to go home and just to campaign in, in elections, uh, which is a very strange strategy for an opposition who believes that they are genuinely, you know, if they believe they're living in a dictatorship, to then tell their supporters, well, actually, no, all along we can just run in elections and, and defeat the government. So what that meant was that for the gubernatorial elections, many of the supporters of the opposition uh, stayed home. Even some of the key opposition parties uh, boycotted those. They went in divided into those elections. As a result of that, they lost that and felt that in terms of for the municipal elections, the best way in order to be able to uh, regroup and re-strengthen themselves was for all of the parties to boycott, to, for everyone to agree to boycott. And you know what they saw was a, you know, almost a clean sweep. It wasn't a complete boycott. There were 
uh, individual candidates and smaller parties from the opposition that did run and did win in a few municipalities. But overall, the, 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 the sort of pro-government forces were able to win you know, the vast majority of those municipal um, elections. Now, of course, the opposition faces a problem where all of them knew that irrespective of what they decided to do in the municipal elections, that almost certainly they would run in the presidential elections. They would not sort of conceive of the situation of just allowing uh, Maduro to run on his own. So with presidential elections scheduled for this year, having gone from a situation of telling their voters to take to the streets to overthrow the dictatorship, to then saying go and vote, to then saying actually the electoral system is fraudulent, that doesn't work. This year, once again, they're going to have to try and convince their supporters that actually they do believe the electoral system can be used to, to overthrow the, the Maduro government. And we'll have to see what impact that has on their ability to actually mobilise both the broad range of opposition parties that exist to win a consensus among them that they should participate in the election and having done that to then mobilise the opposition supporter base to try and get as, as big a vote as possible and try to unseat uh, Maduro through these elections. Is there also an element of infighting in the left? That's more, I would say, rather than infighting, there, there certainly has been an increased political debate and discussion and, and even you know, to the point of confrontation as has been occurring in the left. And we saw this, for instance, in the municipal elections where because the opposition boycotted, uh, it meant that sort of different left-wing groups that are part of the governing alliance or at least have been supportive, uh, if, 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 if perhaps critical, but certainly have been supportive of the governing alliance, uh, were willing to put forward their own candidates without any fear that, you know, split candidatures on the left could mean that the right would win. Um, Venezuelan electoral system is, is largely a first-past-the-post system. So, of course, in general, first-past-the-post system, there's a, a real pressure to unite behind the candidate that's most likely to win. But if, if the right aren't running, then there's no fear of them winning uh, if, if more than one left-wing candidate runs. And so we saw this in the municipal elections uh, where a number of groups that traditionally wouldn't have run candidates uh, did run candidates and in a number of places did actually win against the, the governing party. And, and more than that, uh, we saw attempts by the governing party actually to, to try to stifle those candidatures, to not allow them to run, to not recognise their electoral victories. Some of those are still being disputed in, in the electoral court. So we are, are seeing both that situation arising and, of course, very important political debates over how to deal with what you mentioned at the start, which is the economic situation. There's, of course, increasing concern that whilst the government has been successful on the political terrain over the last year of going from a situation where, as I mentioned, there was months of, of street fighting, you know, of street protests where it really, you know, it was, no one was quite clear what would happen politically in that country to restore in some level of stability going to elections, winning the majority of the governorships, going to elections, winning the majority of municipalities. On the political terrain, they've sort of strengthened themselves, but in the economic terrain, you know, the situation has gone from worse to worse. And so, of course, there are big debates then opening up about, well, how do we best deal with the current economic crisis? What are the kind of measures that need to be taken? Why is the government refusing to take those measures? All of these debates, are they're not new debates, but perhaps because of the urgency of the situation, they're certainly much more public much more out in the open, much more uh, tense um, than they were uh, in, in, in previous periods. You spoke about the upcoming presidential elections. What is the We Are Venezuela movement? 
where our Venezuela movement is, is essentially a sort of a, a broader movement that, that has been established as part of Nicolas Maduro's re-election campaign. So it's really attempting to try to bring in largely those who, who are supportive of the process but not affiliated to any of the existing parties to fill a part of this electoral campaign. And so this is really how the, the government and, and Nicolas Maduro are viewing their re-election campaign as, as a way to re-engage with a, a broader section of society that has been sympathetic to the Bolivarian process, but that over the last few years, for one reason or another, has uh, not given its vote to, to the government. And then you see this in the voting patterns where, you know, from a peak of seven, eight million about eight years ago, over the last few election periods, the support base, irrespective of whatever the elections have been, whether it's been municipal elections, or the National Assembly election, for the governing alliance has, has largely plateaued at about five to five and a half million. Uh, what has made the difference in these different election process over the last few years has been the fluctuating vote for the opposition. So while the PSUB maintains a pretty solid platform, the opposition have showed that at times they can outmobilise that, as they did in the National Assembly elections, but at other times have been unable to reach that because of their own internal division. So Chavismo obviously realises that they need to expand beyond that sort of plateau that they've sort of hit at the moment, uh, and, and I think this is a large part of why they've set up this sort of uh, new movement. Are there any challenges to Maduro? Oh, look, within the left, as of yet, there is no explicit candidate that has been put forward. I would imagine, though, that as we approach the elections, it certainly would be feasible to see uh, what we might call a dissident Chavista candidate. So that would be not necessarily a candidate from one of the parties that are currently in alliance with the government. You see, of course, you've got the, you've got the governing United Socialist Party of Venezuela, but apart from that, you have a range of other parties, the Communist Party, Homeland for All, many other smaller regional parties that are all part of the sort of alliance that generally supports the candidate of the PSUV. I, I think it's unlikely that that alliance will put forward an alternate, or anyone within that alliance will put forward an alternate candidate. But what you may see is a candidate of someone who may present themselves as having been part of the process, perhaps an ex-minister, uh, an ex-governor, someone who will be able to, I suppose, present themselves as being still part of the process, but really representing a, a sort of a dissident faction. As I said, as of yet, no one has really put their put their hat in the ring for that. But there has been, over the last few years, a range of, of ex-ministers who have been trying to position themselves as a sort of a, a third force, I suppose, in, in Venezuelan politics. And I'd be highly surprised if at least one of them didn't put their hat in the ring, uh, at least as the election campaign starts. I would imagine, though, as the, the election date itself gets closer and we start to see a polarisation, as always happens in these elections, between the, the governing candidate and whoever the main opposition candidate is, that at that time, whoever the main opposition candidate is, uh, all of the other candidates will likely step aside uh, in an attempt to group those votes, the sort of anti-government, anti-Chavez, anti-Maduro vote, uh, behind one candidate. In that mix, you then also got to include that the opposition themselves will undoubtedly also have a candidate. They'll just have to work out if all of the parties agree to actually support or participate in these elections or if whether a, a group of them, uh, the more hardline groups, decide to boycott the elections altogether. And just finally, I suppose that you can also guarantee that there'll be increased interference by the US, either overtly or covertly, in those weeks leading up to the elections. 
Well, we're already seeing the overt interventions uh, where the U.S. government has already declared that it, it would not accept any elections in Venezuela because they've already decided even before election dates have been set and any of the process has been established that they're already illegitimate elections. So this is, of course, really trying to pressure the government, also trying to pressure the opposition as well, interfering in the opposition themselves and their internal discussions as to whether to participate or not. Because, of course, when the US comes out saying that they won't recognise these elections, that very much lends weight to the hardliners within the opposition alliance. Uh, who will be telling their allies that, well, this is why we should be boycotting to add to this sort of call for there to be a boycott for us to not recognise any elections and any government that emerges out of it. So the US are already uh, intervening. Uh, thankfully, what we're seeing is that while the media focuses on that, on the international discourse about Venezuela, on what Trump and Washington and what the EU have to say about the elections, the opposition and the government in Venezuela have been involved with dialogue. There has been discussion. Uh, there does seem to be some kind of consensus emerging, at least in regards to these presidential elections, and hopefully that moves ahead so that you know we do have a situation where all sides of the political divide agree to, to participate in presidential elections and, and agree to accept the, the results of, of, those, of those elections and, and allow Venezuelan people themselves to decide their fate uh, and not let it be decided by external pressure by... Um, you know, sort of the political interference from outsiders. It's amazing when you talk, when you hear the Americans complaining about alleged Russian interference in their elections and you think, how many countries does America get involved in? You couldn't count them on your hands and your feet. I doubt it. Fingers and toes, that's what I meant. That was, um, that was Fred Fuentes speaking about Venezuela, and if you'd like to hear or read more about Venezuela, I suggest that you get onto Venezuela Analysis. It's a good website to get an alternative view on what is actually happening in Venezuela today. And Fred is, of course, a journalist and uh, an author of many, many, many years standing. A few more community announcements, and then in a very short time, it's time for done by law.